1 Corinthians 16, and we'll read verses 12 through 14. The Word of God says, Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Verse 13, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. And you can be seated. Um, before we dive in this morning, I want to correct something that I said last week, actually, uh, sort of in regard to the timeline of Paul's missionary journeys and the writing of his letters to Corinth. Uh, I'll be honest, sometimes it's hard to put the timeline together because you sort of have to piece it together uh, through various places. Uh, nevertheless, I should have been much more careful than I was. What I had said last week is that Paul had written 1 Corinthians with the intention of, of going to Corinth the following year, uh, but that trip never panned out. And that's, that's not quite accurate. Uh, what seems to happen is if you put the, put some of the statements in 2 Corinthians together, it looks like what happened is Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, sent Timothy to Corinth with that letter, when Timothy got there, it was such a train wreck that he actually wrote Paul right away, sent that letter back across the bay, and it looks like maybe Paul made a quick trip over to Corinth. But when he got there, it was so bad because there were so many enemies, so many false apostles, that sort of thing, that he was basically ran out of Corinth. And as a result of being run out of Corinth, he goes back to Ephesus, and he writes what what is later called the severe letter. That's the letter between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians that we don't have a copy of. He writes that severe letter. And uh, and then later he does make a trip up to Macedonia, but I don't think he ever goes back to Corinth, at least not on that trip. So so he, he does actually make a trip in there, um, but, but we don't have precise record of it in the book of Acts. Um, but it, it does seem like like he had to have made a trip between those two writings uh, when we piece some things together uh, from Second Corinthians. Um, so the, the best I can tell, he did not visit the Corinthians at that Pentecost date that he mentions uh, earlier in, in chapter 16. Uh, I don't know if you've ever tried to put some of the Bible timeline stuff together. It can be a little bit tricky uh, trying to understand um, what's going on. So with that having been said, I, I want to say that uh, as I also, as I mentioned last week, uh, the last usually chapter of Paul's letters are a little bit of a grab bag of stuff. Uh, a little bit here, a little bit there. They uh, Closing commands, there's some greetings, uh, greetings from the church where Paul's at, and greetings to the church that Paul's writing to. There's often a benediction. So sometimes these closing chapters can feel a little bit like Proverbs, where maybe one little section doesn't really seem to connect to the last section, and uh, that goes on. Um, and that, that's a little bit true here. We're going to look at verses 13 and 14 in depth this morning. Um, they, they don't necessarily connect with exactly what comes before and what's after. What we, what we see in Paul's other letters is that he usually gives some sort of brief exhortation at the end, just sort of some rapid fire commands. Um, and we have these four commands. They are be watchful. It's stand firm in the faith. That's the second one. The third one is act like men. The fourth one is be strong. And then there's this qualifier. I think it's a qualifier to all of those commands, which is in verse 14, which is let all that you do be done in love. 
And so I think that verse 14 sort of qualifies the, the previous four commands. And, and before we jump in, why these commands and why here? We, we've gone through 16 whole chapters, almost 16 full chapters. Um, and then at the very end, we've got these four brief shots. Why, why here? I, I think it's much more generic in nature. Uh, it doesn't mean that these commands are meaningless or just platitudes, um, that sort of thing. But, but Paul does seem to be stepping back a little bit and just kind of taking the, the nature of the church at Corinth as a whole. Here, here's some here's some admonitions. Whereas what we've seen all throughout are some very specific commands to very specific situations. So how do you specifically handle somebody who is single in the church? What is their specific job? What, what do you specifically do to somebody who thinks they have the gift of tongues and they're standing up and nobody's interpreting? How do we specifically deal with that or or some other specifics throughout the letter? Here, it's it's probably just more of a broad overview. Given the, the church or the churches really in Corinth as a whole, what's that final little exhortation? You know, it's like when, when your, your dad or your mom, they, they go out of town for a couple of days and it's that little exhortation that they give the kids like right as they, you know, go out the door like, like all right, now be good for mom. You know, make sure you got your room cleaned and blah, blah, blah. Like it's those final little exhortations. That's kind of what we have here is these final little exhortations. And so I want to unpack these one by one this morning. So the first exhortation that we have is be watchful. Or some of you have be on your guard. That's in verse 13. Be watchful. Which begs the question, of course, be watchful for what? Be on guard for what? Uh, in the, the Greek, the, the word is a single word, and it's gregoreo, which is where we get the name Greg or, or Gregory. And it does generically mean be ready for something, be watchful for something. And not just be watchful the one time, the, the word gives this idea of constant vigilance, constant watchfulness and alert. And you say, well, that's fine, but what are we watching out for? What are we supposed to do here? Well, if you, you take a survey of this word throughout, especially the New Testament, you notice that it is almost exclusively applied to two situations. One is to prayer. And the other is living in light of watching for the return of the Lord Jesus. So one is prayer, and one is return, watching and living in light of the Lord Jesus. So you don't have to turn there, I'll just read some of these to you. But when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying the night before he's crucified, Matthew 26 says, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, he told Peter, James, and John, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And what you see is later on that that word watch is a synonym actually for praying. He's saying, pray with me, you guys. Pray with me. Because he gets up and later on he rebukes them, right? Because he finds them asleep. And his issue is, could you not pray with me for one hour? So be watchful. Gregoreo. Fervent prayer. Paul uses this word in Colossians 4 verse 2 where he says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. Gregoreo, with thanksgiving. Being constant, fervent prayer. First Peter 5 6, Peter says, Humble yourself therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you 
casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So we know that. Pray to God. Give him your burdens. But then right after that, he says this. Be sober-minded and be watchful. Be constant in giving your anxieties to God. Be constant in praying for him to relieve your situation. The way of Christians is always to be watchful in prayer, to be on guard to pray all the time. The second way the Bible uses this word is in regards to the coming of Jesus. Jesus himself uses this word in regards to the coming destruction of Jerusalem in Matthew 24. Jesus says this, Therefore stay awake, Gregoreo, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake, same word, and would have not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. He's saying that this, this coming of uh, destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, this is coming. It'll be in your lifetime, but you don't know when it's going to be. You need to be ready. And actually, what's interesting is the apostles pick up on that language with regards to the second coming of Jesus. So in 1 Thessalonians 5, again, talking about the second coming, Paul says, So then let us not be asleep as others are, but let us keep awake, Gregoreo, and sober. So there's this constant encouragement in the New Testament to live in light of the return of Jesus. Could happen at any minute, could happen at any hour. We don't know. If Jesus doesn't come, we're going to go to him one way or another. And so we need to live in light of the expectation of standing before the Lord. Why does Paul give this command? Why does he say in verse 13, be watchful? Because the reality is we're commanded to do the things that we don't do naturally. Not too many people naturally are watchful in prayer. I don't know about you guys. It's hard for me to be watchful in prayer, to be vigilant in prayer all the time. Not many people are are just prone to praying without ceasing. Some of you guys, maybe you're prayer warriors, and and you just commune with Jesus all day long. Like, praise God for you. That's hard for me. I'll go hours without even thinking about Jesus. I'm like a functional atheist. Right? Like just walking around. I'm like, oh yeah, like I'm a Christian and God created this planet and I'm here for a purpose. Like, do you guys do that? Like you just forget the bigger picture of things. We need to be reminded. How often do we really live our lives in light of Jesus returning? How often do we really make decisions, spending decisions, plans, all that sort of thing, knowing, you know what, Jesus, Jesus could come in the middle of my plan here. Am I ready for that? Am I, am I, am I living in light of that? Well, we need to be reminded of that. So do we really pray as though Jesus is listening and working? There's a famous quote by a guy named Robert Murray Machane, and he says this about Jesus actually praying for us. He says, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies— Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me now. That's true. And I want to do a little twist on that. If we would pray, knowing that Jesus was in the next room hearing us, we might be more vigilant in prayer, wouldn't we? Because we would know that he hears us. Yet the distance makes no difference. Amen? 
he still hears us. And so we should be vigilant in prayer as well. So stay watchful, you guys, in prayer. It's hard. It's hard for me. And stay watchful knowing that the Lord's returning and we're going to stand before him. The second command is stand firm in the faith. That's verse 13. Be watchful. That's first. The next is stand firm in the faith. This is one of the constant refrains throughout the New Testament. Stand firm. Stand fast. And when this command is given, it is almost always in relation to holding on to the gospel message. Hold on to the gospel message. Stand on it. Stand firm. Galatians 5.1, talking about those who are tempted to go back to the law to try to justify themselves by, by keeping a whole bunch of commands and getting merit badges for God. Paul says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. He set us free from the law. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. People love laws. We love laws, you guys. We love to like have little check boxes. Am I, am I doing good with Jesus this week? Did I, did I keep all the commands? I did, so I must be good. Like God is pleased with me. Maybe these things earn me favor. People love external religion and we get caught up thinking God's favor is based on our performance. We know that that's not true. We know that the gospel says we are not saved by works, but we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But you guys, we constantly struggle with thinking that we're actually saved by our works, functionally speaking. That God's favor is really only on us because of how we performed that week or that day. The gospel is that God pours out his kindness and grace on all of us because of Jesus, not because of our works. God does not pour out his favor by us or on us by keeping the Old Testament law. But Paul says this to that, that it takes resolve to stand firm in the faith. It takes resolve. First Thessalonians 3 8 says, For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Stand fast in the Lord, or stand fast in the faith, or in the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 1, Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and in which you now stand. We stand in the gospel. We stand on the truth. It's not enough just to know the gospel. It's not enough just to, to know the truths and the facts and information about the gospel. You can even say that you maybe believe the tenets of the gospel are true and right and good. I hear unbelievers do that all the time. But you have to stand and rejoice and love the faith of the gospel. What does it mean to stand firm? It means that we don't waver in our commitment to the gospel. We don't waver in our commitment to the truth of the word of God. There have always been pressures on Christians to waver. There have always been pressures on Christians to buckle and to cave. In the early church, there was pressure to abandon the simple gospel of salvation by faith alone and christ alone the pressure was was really twofold number one it was is from the the, the jews now you got to keep the law you have to be circumcised in order to be saved well you know the circumcision was before the law seems like it's a thing paul goes no it is faith alone and there's also pressure from the roman world at the time that was very polytheistic jesus is just one of many lords 
No, he is the only Lord. He is the only one. In our day, i got to be honest, there's a lot of wavering for political correctness. A lot of wavering because we don't want to sound bigoted. Like we hate people. We don't want to sound narrow-minded by claiming that Jesus is the only way to the Father. The world wants us to be open-minded. The world wants us to compromise. They don't want us to be quote-unquote Christian nationalists, whatever that even means. To take a stand. But God calls us to take a stand. He calls us to stand firm. To stand against lies and sin and slander. To stand against the allure of popularity. The allure of people not liking us because we hold to the truth. So Paul says stand firm. On what? On the faith. The faith. What is the faith? The faith is a synonym of the gospel. It's not our subjective faith. It is the faith. It is the whole gospel message that we believe. And we see this in a couple of places. First Timothy 6, Paul says that there are people who have swerved from the faith. What have they done? They would still say that they hold to Jesus, but they've abandoned actually the, the truth in the gospel message. They've swerved from the faith. 1 Timothy 4, the Spirit expressly says in later times, some will depart from the faith. Colossians 1, continue in the faith. 1 Timothy 3, hold to the mystery of the faith. It's an objective set of beliefs that you have to not just believe, but you have to love and embrace and proclaim in order to be saved. Turn over to the book of Jude really quick, just right before Revelation. Go to Revelation 1 and turn back a page to the left. Jude is a, he's a fiery guy. In verse 1, he identifies himself as the brother of James, which means he was the half-brother of Jesus. It's interesting that he identifies himself as the brother of James rather than the half-brother of Jesus because he's not trying to get in on some sort of like nepotism thing because the reality is that Jude worships his half-brother. Same mother, different father. But Jude looks to Jesus, his half-brother, as his Lord and his master and his savior first and foremost. But here's what he says in verses 3 and 4. And I think this is very important for us. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Jude seems to be writing to a church or, or a group of people. We don't know the exact uh, group that he's writing to, but it seems like initially what he wanted to do was write and maybe expound on the on the glories of the faith, maybe something like Hebrews or Romans, sort of unpack some deeper theology. But whatever had come up in, in this group, it seemed like it was more urgent just for him to write something off quick and fast and the deal that, that, that he really gets to is you need to contend. And that word means to fight, like your life depends on it. You need to contend 
for the faith. He doesn't say for your faith. He doesn't say for a faith. He says for the faith, the gospel message, the faith, the body of truth. It was once for all delivered. Well, what is what does that mean? It was once for all delivered. Once for all means it was completely or finally delivered in its fullest form. It was given to the saints through the apostles. This is the definitive saving faith that God has handed down once for all time. That's it. There's nothing more that that will ever be added. There's no golden tablets buried somewhere that you can only read with special glasses like the Mormons say. There's no papal edict from, from Rome that the Catholics say that we need to listen to. There's no Watchtower magazine. There's no hidden Da Vinci code. There's no, there's no other information that we need except that what we find right here, it is once for all delivered to us. We have everything that we need right here. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone. This is all we need. It's been finally revealed to us, completely revealed. We have everything that we need for salvation and godly living. And it's been handed down by God through the apostles for us, the end. And we just need to hold to it. And we just need to fight for it because it's worth fighting for. He uses this word contend. And the Greek word means to exert intense effort, extreme effort, Olympic level effort. Uh, There's a, I think he's Jamaican. He's a sprinter or was. Usain Bolt, and he was the fastest man on the planet, I think in the 100-meter and the 200-meter dash. And in every race, he gave 100% effort every single time, and no one could catch him. They were like yards behind him. He blew the competition away. Why? Because he contended like life mattered 100%. That's what we're called to, to contend at 100% effort against every opponent of the faith. So what are we contending for? What is what is the faith? Well, this faith is contained in the Holy Bible, the 66 books of the Christian scripture. It is inerrant, infallible word of God. There is no other revelation. There's no other philosophy that we need, no other system that we need to, to see or ideology that supersedes the Bible. There is God's holy word. That's all we need and that's all we fight for. And his word tells us specifically who God is. He is the eternal, glorious, triune creator God of the universe who is worthy of all worship, all glory, all honor, all dominion, and all of our obedience. And he reveals himself eternally as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons, three in one, one in three. And his glory, his majesty is most fully manifest in the Father sending the Son to take on human flesh, live a perfect life, and die a sacrificial life on the cross for all those who would trust in Christ. He died to make atonement for our sins, and through faith we are saved. And not only are our sins paid for on the cross, but if you believe in Jesus, his righteousness is imputed to your account, and so that the Father looks on you as being just as holy, just as righteous as Jesus Christ himself. And we are saved. I was talking to a man this week. Uh, he said he was Mormon, or at least he claimed to be Mormon. And so we were just chatting. And I was like, so what's salvation? And he goes, that's a really good question. I'm like, what do you need to, be, to believe to be saved? And he goes, man, that's, 
that's just a really good question. I was like, well, let me back it up. Like, when we say saved, just think of that word. When we say saved, what are we saved from? And he goes, that's a really good question. He had no answers. And I said, you know, when, when you use the word saved or salvation, you're keeping something from harm. You're keeping something from destruction. When you, when you save a, a, a book or a toy from being tossed out in the garbage, you're saving it from destruction. And so I told him that the salvation that God has brought about through faith in Christ is actually salvation from God. That's what it's salvation from. It's from God's holy wrath. The wrath of God completely satisfied. That's what we sang. That's what we're saved from. Yes, we're saved from hell. But you know what hell is? It's the outpouring of God's wrath through the Lamb Jesus forever and ever. We are saved from God's own holy wrath. The Bible says that we are totally depraved, sinners deserving of damnation, who could on our own do nothing to merit God's grace or God's favor. But because God is infinitely merciful, infinitely kind, infinitely gracious, he has chosen some to rescue out of this wrath through faith in Jesus. And because God is infinitely holy, he must punish sin on infinite magnitude. And so all sin is dealt with, either on the cross of Christ or in hell forever. That's what we're saved from. When Jesus rescues us, he rescues us from himself. He rescues us from God's holy and just and righteous wrath. From torment and flames and weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mean, think about the contrast. Heaven is described as the place where there are no more tears. There is no more pain. And hell is exactly the opposite. Where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth and torment forevermore. They could not be more polar opposite. So through faith in Jesus, God has saved us from himself. He has saved us from his holy wrath. And in his grace, he has given us eternal hope and eternal joy an eternal relationship with him through Christ. And through faith, we are now adopted into the family of God, part of the church universal, part of the, the faith of every believer of all the ages all around the world, and we are part of the church local. We gather with the saints every Sunday morning to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's the faith. And we keep proclaiming the faith until Jesus comes back and makes all things new. That's what we hold on to. That's what we fight for. And that intolerant message is what the world wants us to compromise on. They want us to buckle. They want us to compromise. You don't really mean that. You don't really think Jesus is the only way. You don't think God really made just two genders, do you? They want us to compromise. Paul says, stand firm in the faith. Stand firm on these truths that will save you and will save others. This is the message of the faith we are called to stand firm on. Back in 1 Corinthians, this is part of Paul's final exhortations. There's a third one. Chapter 16, verse 13. Be watchful. That was the first thing we saw. Stand firm in the faith. That was the second. The third is act like men. Act like men. You may have caught on by now, but the Bible is not very politically correct. Not even a little bit. 
It actually believes that there's just two genders, pretty amazing, pretty radical, and that those genders are tied completely to biology down to the chromosomal level in your body, down to your DNA. It is inseparable to who you are physically and biologically. That, of course, is not lost on God. God knows that. God designed us that way. He did that in the garden. And although our country has been completely given over to the spirit of the age that tries to confuse biology and gender and all of this stuff, God's design still stands. And so when Paul comes along and says, act like men, he actually means what he says. Men, act like how God has designed you to be in accordance with your biology and in accordance with the purpose that he has given us. So how has he designed men? What's unique about men? Well, I assign a fair amount of reading in our premarital counseling uh, from John Piper's book called This Momentary Marriage. And I would really commend the whole book to you anyway. It's a wonderful book. It's not very long. But Piper makes the case, and, and I agree with this, that, that there are basically four categories that men lead in in the marriage. But I think we can broaden that out with four categories that, that men in general should lead in. So it's spiritual provision and spiritual protection and then physical protection and physical provision. So those sort of like a two-by-two matrixy. So spiritual provision, spiritual protection, physical provision, physical protection. So spiritual provision. We are to provide spiritual nourishment to our families and to our neighbors and to our church. The onus on leadership throughout the Bible is on men. That's not to say that women can't participate and that women cannot have a role. They can. But throughout the Bible, what we see are men specifically giving nourishment to the people of God, encouraging, teaching, admonishing, leading people in the Lord more and more toward more and more godliness. That onus is almost always primarily on the men. We do see Titus too, you know, older ladies, discipling younger ladies, amen and amen. But more often than not, what we see is that men give spiritual provision to not only their families, but to all the family of God. Men are also called to spiritually protect. It's not just enough to ensure that, that people are getting good things, good theology or whatever, but we also need to ensure that they're not getting bad theology, bad teaching. I mean, you, these, these guys on, on TV, most of them are heretics. But if you just watch for 10 minutes, you might go... What's wrong with Creflo Dollar? What, what's wrong with, with all Joyce Meyer? What's, what's wrong with all these people? Because well, you got to keep listening. And the heresy, the error, the damnation is, is just little bits here and there. They completely undermine the faith. So it's, it's not just giving good food, but it's making sure there's no poison in the water. So we have to protect our family from those things too. I was listening to a playlist on uh, on my phone, we were driving around, and uh, afterward, uh, my daughter was singing one of the songs, and uh, it's not a Christian song, and I'm like, oh, hmm, I don't know that I want my daughter to be singing this song. That is completely inappropriate for her, actually, to be singing. Like, we're not listening to that again. we got to protect them from things, even if they don't know precisely everything that's in there. But they'll hang on to things. It's our job, men, to protect people from spiritual danger. We're also called to provide and protect physically. In the garden, God called Adam to work the ground and to provide even before he was married. That was on him. 
to work, to till, to provide. And even now, Paul says that if any man won't work, let him not eat. If you're not willing to work, don't eat. Don't, don't feed that. We are called as men to be the primary physical providers, not only of our own family, but of all those around. If God has blessed you with more, then, then we help those who are in need. And we are called to be the main physical protectors. It's no coincidence that the Bible calls women the weaker vessel. That's not an insult. It's not an insult at all. God has designed it that way. And in fact, Peter is basically saying to the guys in the congregation he's writing to, give the ladies a break. This is how God's designed them. Endure with them. Love them. God knows they're weaker. He made them. You're there to protect them. And again, just to be clear, women can participate in some of these things as well. They can help provide. They can help protect. There's a reason, uh, you know, if, if somebody weird, ladies, gets around your kids, like that mama bear instinct rises up, right? Because you want to protect them. That's a good thing. And if, if there's no man around, like, you're called to protect. Like, that's, you really are. But the, the point is, is the leadership is on the man and on the men of God. If you look in other areas of the Bible, this, this command, act like men, is actually a, a command and a call to courage. Men, be courageous as you lead. Actually, it's interesting. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, it's the Philistines that are like trying to psych each other up. All right, if, oh, Philistines, act like men because we don't want to become slaves of the Israelites like they've been with us. So they're like, hey, strap on your big boy pants. We're going to battle. Otherwise, we're going to be slaves or dead, one or the other. But be courageous. In First Kings 2, when David is passing the torch to Solomon, he says the very same thing. Act like a man, Solomon. You're going to be the head of the kingdom. You need to be courageous. Kings have to have courage. We see a whole litany of kings throughout the Old Testament that were complete cowards. No, we are called to live and lead courageously for God's glory. The fourth thing he says here is be strong. Verse 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Interestingly, there are a lot of people who connect, act like men, and be strong as though they are connected. Like, hey, you got to hit the gym, right? you got to have some biceps, don't skip leg day. Like, make sure you got some legs, you know, that sort of thing. Um, I, I actually think that they are disconnected. Because when you see this word again elsewhere throughout the New Testament, it's not be strong physically, because some men are not able to be strong physically. Literally, it's it, the, the command is be strengthened. Let something come into you that strengthens you. And you go, well, what is that? Is he is this creatine? Is Are we taking creatine? Is that what we're doing? Like get strong that way? And the answer is no. When you see this throughout the New Testament, he says be strengthened, and he modifies it, in grace. Be strengthened in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know how Christians become strong in the Lord? We rely more and more on the grace of Jesus. We understand more and more that we're sinners, and we understand more and more how much grace God has given to us, and the difference between the two. So, so the more that you, if this is like base zero, the more Sinful you understand yourself to be, the more you understand the righteousness and grace of God. And the more that these grow, that middle right here is how you're strengthened. And what it overflows in is worship. That's what it overflows in. The older you get in the faith, I promise you, the more sin you will see in your life. 
And the more, you better ensure that you understand greatly the grace of God in Christ Jesus for you. That's how you're strengthened. It's not by hitting the gym. You can hit the gym. Paul says a little physical exercise is a good thing. That's all right. But how the Christian is strengthened is in grace, is in being reminded of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. There was one time, I think I've told you guys this, I was working for a guy, a good guy, and uh, I said something completely inappropriate to this guy. Like, I should have been fired instantaneously. And I, I stopped, and I apologized, and I apologized again by the end of the day, and I thought, he's going to call me and just say, you're done. You're done. He came in the next morning, and he came up, and we had a hard conversation, and he said, look, I prayed about it, and, and I accept your apology, and we're just going to let it go, and, and you still have your job. And I was like, <sighs> and I tried all the more to please him because he had shown me grace. It's grace, you guys, that strengthens us. It's grace that builds our faith. It's grace that keeps us going. The same is true with God's grace. Have you blown it? Did you blow a big this week? Last week? God still loves you. Based on Christ alone. Grow in that grace. Fifth, the thing, the command that I think modifies all of this is do all things in love. Or verse 14 says, let all that you do be done in love. Again, I think this is a qualifier for all the other commands. We watch in love. We, we wait expectantly for Jesus in love and we are praying out of a heart of love. We stand firm in the faith, but we're not jerks. We hold to the gospel unwavering, but, but, but not with a bad reputation. No, in love, we hold strong to the gospel. We're not rude. We're not grating. We're called to love. And even our conduct as men should be done in love. There's this kind of patriarchal movement that happens in conservative reformed churches where male leadership is held up all the time. And, and it can become kind of toxic, kind of, kind of bad and, and, I don't necessarily have a problem with with encouraging male leadership. I think that's a good thing. What's a bad thing is when it's not done in love. And men give these excuses. Well, this is just how God made me. I'm just, you know, rough around the edge. No. That's your sin. And the grace of God and the gospel calls you to love, to gentleness and kindness. And we strengthen each other in grace out of love. All things are done in love. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1 that the aim of his charge is love. Imagine, imagine a big target, right? And you've got a bow and arrow. And on this target, there's, there's all these different things that, we, that we're called to for the Lord Jesus. And at the very center of the bullseye, there's one word. You know what that one word is? It's love. It's love. The aim of our charge is love. If your target for the Christian life is love and you're aiming for that at every time, you know what you're going to do? You're going to do exactly what God wants you to do. And you're going to bring him glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these final exhortations. Lord, help us to do these things. Help us to rely on your grace, to act like men, to be faithful, to be watchful, to stand firm for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.